welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Tuesday Not So Deep Dive episode. We have Ian Gray on this week and we're talking 23andMe. Ryan, this was your choice. So did you know anything about this company beforehand? No. And this was a recommendation, a listener recommendation. So. All right. So it should be a fun one. Ian, did you know anything about this company? I did know a little bit about it. I've uh, had a little bit of experience with it, but not too much about the company itself, just its product. Right. I think this is the first time all three of us had looked at the S1. So pretty much a first look for all of us. And we're going to let Ryan get into what the company does in the history. But first, let's talk about Potential Multibaggers, our sponsor for the Tuesday Not So Deep Dive episodes. The aim of the Potential Multibaggers service is to find stocks that can go up 10x over the next 10 years or compound at 26% per year. And we've said this before, and I know people might think, wow, that's a high hurdle. How are they ever going to do that? So far, the picks have actually done better than that when looking out over, I think it's a four or five year time horizon. So pretty dang good. They picked Shopify at 77, C at 54, Cloudflare at 39, and there's a bunch others they've had. I think at the time he sent this over to us, 23 picks. I'm sure there's a few more since then, since this was a few months ago, but it's not constant picks over and over again. It is just a few, you know, he's going to, you know, find something and you're going to swing big on it and then you're going to, well, you go through the portfolio management with him, but you know he looks up uh, all the stuff you buy and verify, like he says, which means that he's updating you know, on news alerts, say a stock drops 20% for no reason. You can discuss it within the community, all that great stuff. It's a great service for anyone looking for high growth stocks. And if you want to check it out and become a multi, you can go to Seeking Alpha and look for From Growth to Value, Google it, or go to at From Value on Twitter. All right, Ryan, do you want to introduce... 23 of me, and then talk about seven investing maybe a bit too, because yeah, the picks are just out. Do that first. Brief, Sound yeah. the alarm. We've got our October picks out. Uh, did you look through them all? I did. Great as always. Uh, we were talking to Dan a bit about his pick. He teased it on Twitter, which I thought was very funny. Uh, and then, but yeah, uh, you know. You have a favorite? Uh, I mean, our style goes kind of with Matt Cochran's style, but either way, I mean, we're talking about this episode about biotech. Uh, 23andMe is kind of in the biotech realm, realm now, genetics. I am very uncertain about you know the path forward in some of these companies. But if you, someone that isn't, is Max Chatsko, who we just had on the show talking about Verve Therapeutics. That was not one of the picks, just to be clear. They don't talk about their picks uh, beforehand. But if you're looking for something within that realm, learning about that, I mean, it's worth it just for those, just for the the lessons and the reports that Max gives out about the biotech industry. I mean, I, I'm going through a little bit of a uh, biotech rabbit hole myself, and Max is a great place to start for that. Uh, well, then now we're going to be an expert on the show. I've taken AP Bio. You know, uh, uh, Ian Ian's lurked up the service before. Ryan's watched some YouTube videos. Now chemistry. We're, we're basically biotech analysts now. All right, uh, and I guess use our code CCM if you want to check out Seven Investments Rex, especially for this month. Uh, but I'm going to get to 23 and Me. So they are a direct to consumer genetic testing company. That's 
what they call themselves, and I believe they were the first. They said they, that they were the pioneer uh, in their S1. Uh, basically, you can go, if you're any person, can just go to 23andMe's website. You can order one of three kits. So there's the Ancestry service for $99, the health service for $99, or both for $199. Uh, customers then get shipped or receive a vial and it's that's what's in the kit and you're supposed to fill it with saliva for the 30 minutes prior to it you're like not allowed to have any mouthwash food anything like that it's supposed to be a clean saliva sample you fill up this tube or vial and you set you ship it back with the packaging that they give you to a 23andme laboratory from there the sample is tested and customers receive a plethora of information uh depending on the package that they ordered um and and that's the basis or the basics of the service that everyone kind of likes, they like to see it. Apparently they get a lot of shipments during Mother's Day. That's 23andMe is kind of, the kit is kind of a common gift for Mother's Day. Um, if customers consent to it during registration, this is important. 23andMe can add the patient's information to their database. So that's really sort of the goal is that they can kind of collect this giant database of user information, um, user health information, but they obviously have to consent to it. And then uh, from there, uh, 23andMe can give licenses to their database, to other research firms or uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers. And 23andMe is trying to develop successful drugs themselves. So they have sort of this therapeutics portion of revenue, even though it's uh, is literally 0%. Yeah, they're not in the market right now. Yeah. yeah, but they have, I think they've identified 40 drug candidates or targets. Um, so that's sort of the goal. The get this user generated database of health information and then use it to leverage either uh, licenses to other firms or develop successful drugs yourself. Uh, most of their revenue still comes from what it calls personal genome services. That's basically just the testing and giving back the results. Um, I think that pretty much covers it. I, I don't think I'm really missing anything there. That's sort of the basics of their entire business. It, a subscription studio. You want to talk about that? They're trying to do that for. Yeah, they introduced long. a membership, but from what I understand, all you can get from it is just slightly more extensive reports. Yes, and they only have one hundred twenty-five thousand currently, but it started less than a year ago. So okay, um, but I'll, I'll talk about the history. So Ann Wojcicki, I might be. Mis I'm sorry if I'm butchering that name. I think it's Wojcicki, right? Ian, is that yeah, Wojcicki. Okay, Wojcicki um, started 23andMe in 2006 with Linda Avey and Paul Susena or Kusena, uh, Kusenza, sorry. And it was basically the same model that they have today. And by the next year, they received $3.6 million in funding from Google and some other VCs. It's worth noting that Ann Wojcicki was married to Sergey Brin at the time. So, and I believe, uh, I'll, I'll let Ian talk about it more, but I think Ann Wojcicki's sister, according to Brett, is the CEO of YouTube. He's nodding at me, okay. Um, Anyway, in 2013, the FDA ordered 23andMe to stop marketing its tests because it wasn't clear to provide its customers with health risk information. Um, that seems logical. It seems like the same possible risk that Theranos could go through where you might provide misinformation if you haven't had uh, clearance from the FDA. Um, and so this basically halted 23andMe for four years. Um, but in 2017, their application was approved. And now 23andMe is back up and running. And Wojcicki is still there, if I'm not mistaken. And they finalized their SPAC merger. That's how they went public with Virgin Group Acquisition Corp in June of this year. That is one of Richard Branson's SPAC vehicles. And now I think they've had one quarter as a public company. Yeah, a little light on the documents. The S1 has some stuff, although the SPAC S1s are a bit tedious. They're all like 300 pages just because, um, well, 
you know, it's just kind of the SPAC realm, but I'll hit industry and competition pretty quickly. Genetic testing is expected to reach $10 billion a year in the US by 2027. I would take that with a grain of salt because like with all these research reports, they basically expect every industry or predict quote unquote, every industry to grow at above GDP levels, which, you know, I really would bet the other side that we're going to grow GDP at 10%. However, 23andMe also operates as a pharmaceutical company, like Ryan said, and that is a much larger market at about $500 billion a year. That is why I think they pivoted from these GDC tests. We'll get into the unit economics and stuff, but the pharmaceutical business seems a lot more lucrative. Uh, competitors in genetic testing include Ancestry.com, Futura Genetics, Veritas Genetics, Helix, Regeneron. There are a ton. There's some that are D2C focused, like... Um, 23 and me where it's more of like pick this up for a gift and there's some that are probably more prof- professional focused like Fulgent genetics which we talked about i believe a few weeks or months ago i can't really remember at this point but the reason that there are so many startups and this is kind of a side note is that genetic testing has gotten a lot cheaper over the past few decades but there's a big but here it does rely on an arguable monopoly supplier called illumina uh so that's they supply 100 of the testing equipment to 23andMe and other companies like this. I think we talked about this with Fulgent Genetics too, where they're supplying 100% of the stuff. So you think that the power might be with Illumina. And I forget the ruling, but there's some sort of regulatory thing that enables Illumina to not have anyone copy their stuff. Might be a patent, something like that. And then in pharma, you know, they compete with all the companies trying to develop drugs. I don't think I need to list them all here. There are hundreds out there. Um, All right, Ian, do you want to hit management and ownership? Yep. Ann Wojcicki is the co-founder and CEO, still the CEO, as, as Ryan was talking about. She owns about 24% of the shares outstanding and is the largest shareholder by far. Um, as Ryan was mentioning, she was married to Sergey Brin, and it's a little bit of an interesting backstory. So her older sister is the CEO of YouTube, um, but she first started, she was one of an, she was an early Google employee, and she was actually the person who rented her garage to Larry and Sergey when they were first getting um, Google start. And so she rents her garage to them. And then eventually I think sees, oh, wow, this is growing pretty fast and decided, hey, I want to come work for you. And so became one of their early employees, um, worked her way up as the CEO of YouTube. Um, and that's kind of how Anne met Sergey. And then they were married for a number of years, um, ended up getting a divorce. And then after that, she actually dated Alex Rodriguez, um, the Yankees baseball, or former Yankees baseball player, who's been getting more into the tech world. Former Mariner too. Former Mariner, that's correct. Former Mariner, former Texas Ranger. Prime, yeah, prime. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, exactly. So, anyways, she kind of has been running. um, She's kind of she's at the the elite tech. She's in the elite tech circles of of the United States. I think it's fair to say. Um, A couple of little points. So she was on uh, Masters of Scale, a podcast with Reed Hoffman, which I think is a really, um, I think that's a really well done podcast. And um, if you want to learn more about her. I think that does a good job of kind of an, uh, of her kind of explaining some of what drives her and some of her story. So I definitely recommend listening listening to that. And then I would also say about her that it's pretty impressive to have steered the company through the difficult times all the way to the SPAC merger. They've had some kind of ups and downs as a company. Ryan mentioned the um, the FDA issue that they had in 2013, and they've also um, they had to fire some employees and, and slim down a little bit in 2020 when the pandemic hit and um, around that time. So there's just been, it's, it hasn't been a straight path upwards. There's been a little bit of a bumpy road, but got it all the way to this back merger, which is pretty impressive. And she seems very determined. All the stories about her point to that. 
And then the last thing I'll mention is that on Glassdoor, 94% of employees approve of her. And that's actually higher than those that would recommend the company, but they, um, all the employees seem to really like her. And so I think that's, that's a positive um, when you've got someone who kind of purports to be very employee friendly and very determined and, and works pretty hard and, and sometimes has to make hard decisions, but still um, the vast, vast majority of employees approve of her. So. Yeah. looks like they, I mean, the track record speaks for itself. They've had to navigate some things uh, pretty narrow, you know, uh, make or break situations, I guess. I'll hit valuation quick. Market cap is about 3.3 billion ticker ME. Price to sales is about 13.2 based on their full year guidance. And then price to gross profit is 25.5. If you extrapolate last quarter's financials, I just took the gross margin from there and put it out. I, I Honestly, it was just a bit lazy. I don't, I don't think this business is seasonal, but if it is, it could be a little higher, a little lower. I don't think it is. I don't think there's any relevant ratios uh, lower on the income statement or cash flow at this point. They talk about adjusted EBITDA. I typically like to ignore that. They're right around break even, I think, on cash flow, but they are going to probably probably be cash flow negative, but we'll hit the balance sheet uh, later and they have plenty of cash right now. I would note though, that they have about 65.9 million stock options outstanding versus 407 million shares, 16.9 million in public warrants and 161 million total future shares of common stock eligible to be issued. So I would expect dilution. They have, this is one of the, you know, that's one of the highest numbers, at least proportionally, you know, to the shares outstanding that we've seen. Um, I would expect dilution to be uh, going forward. This is something you got to factor in. All right, Ryan, you want to talk earnings? Yeah. And so overall, the earnings are not very exciting, but uh, I'll caveat it at the end with something that I found a little interesting. So full year 2021 revenue was $244 million. Um, that's down 20% year over year and down 45% from 2019. I think part of that might've been attributable to COVID. It looked... Uh, I mean, they had obviously the COVID disclosures in their S1, not to mention that revenue uh, ticked down pretty substantially. Um, but 2021 gross margin was 48%, actually up from 45% in 2020. I'll talk about why that was. They have negative 75% operating margins, profitability. All in all, profitability just doesn't look very good. Um, and it's a little hard to know or see how they're going to get there. Um, and they spent 36% of revenue on stock-based compensation in 2021 which was a little absurd. And then Q1 looked a little bit better. Um, consolidated revenue grew 23% year over year. However, it's still down over two and three year comps. Um, they expanded their total genotyped customer base, but they didn't say by how much. So I think they're at 11.6. And that was 11.3 at the end of the year. So growth has slowed in that regard, but I think they pulled back on marketing spend. Um, so I don't know what to do with that, but. Okay. And the, uh, I know they for sure pulled back on marketing spend in 2021 uh, or the last fiscal year, but uh, it looks like Q1 was an improvement, at least uh, on annual comps. But here's where I found it kind of interesting. So from 2019 to 2021, first of all, they break out revenue into two components. There's consumer and research services revenue, and then there's therapeutics revenue. Therapeutics revenue is theoretical. It doesn't actually exist right now, or it has existed in 2019 and 2020, but it's gone down to, I think, arounding, I think it rounds to 0% of overall revenue. Um, so from 2019 to 2021, consumer and research services revenue declined by 44%. However, revenue from kit sales, um, which is that PGS, um, declined by 54% during that time. So in that period, revenue from what I assume is database licenses increased by 274%. 
Um, there could be another contributor in there that I'm not thinking of, but it sounds like they're starting to leverage that database and sell it to other research firms. Yeah, uh, having a little time, hard time following that, but I think that makes sense if you run the math. That's something that if so, you're an investor, definitely try to calculate where the, any of that growth is coming from. Those two, I'll try to explain it, I guess, a little more. Those two, the kit sales and the database licenses get grouped together, and kit sales is declining faster than then, the revenue between the two. Then so, overall, okay. That makes sense. Okay. The other one is actually improving, it looks like. Um, but I'll let Ian kind of hit balance sheet liquidity. Yep. So pretty simple balance sheet here. Um, they've got cash of $770 million, which is enough to sustain about eight years of the current burn rate. So a, a good amount of cash. Um, no debt, about $90 million in operating lease liabilities. Um, and I will just point out that they are keen to highlight strong, the strong cash position. And it's probably whenever I hear a management team really highlighting something, like continually directing my opinion towards something, I try and think, okay, why are they doing that? I, I assume that they're doing that knowing that um, there's a lot of burn ahead and then also trying to quell investor fears about significant dilution, as Brett was kind of highlighting earlier, that they they want to give the impression, hey, we've got plenty of cash. We don't have to raise money. We've got plenty of cash. We're in a good position. Um, but as, as Brett was mentioning, there's a lot of outstanding options and warrants out there that um, even if they don't go to raise any more money, um, will weigh on the, on the overall shares outstanding. And then I just wanted to make a quick point too. We talked about seasonality earlier, and it's not a crazy seasonal business, but there is some seasonality. Um, particularly in their their Q4, which I believe is from uh, January to March. Um, is that Mother's is their Q4 on their fiscal year? So, no, that's May. Um, so. That's uh, like, I don't know if it's like um, post sorry, like Christmas. I'm not sure why that is. But oh, there's a yeah, because they don't there. recognize the revenue until after. So Christmas, oh, okay. they recognize in January. In Q4. Interesting. Okay. So, yeah, that's what it is. So there's a little bit of a bump typically over the last couple of years in Q4. Okay. All right. Yeah. And uh, I think another note, I forget what the number exactly was, but they're spending, it's like 65 or 75% of revenue on R&D. So that is going to be high for a long time. And that is because they've ramped up the research on drug development, which is expensive um, over the next, or sorry, over the last few years. All right, let's take a break. This episode is brought to you by KPMG. As a business leader, how can you innovate, build trust, and move forward in a digital era? KPMG can help by bringing together the right talent and technologies, generating insights that spark opportunities. To explore their thinking, visit read.kpmg.us opportunities. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Here you are, miles from home and ready to start your vacation. Good thing you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. They have free high-speed Wi-Fi to stream all your favorite movies. And in the morning, get fresh waffles with their free bright side breakfast. Or squeeze in a workout at their fitness center. Either way, you're ready to conquer the day. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you triumph. Book your stay at LQ.com. Okay, welcome back. Next up, we got anecdotal evidence. Uh, Ian, looks like you got some for us. Yep, so I got a test about four or five years ago, actually, just an ancestry test. And I typically wouldn't have gotten one, but I had a family member who was doing a little bit of genealogy work and asked me to get it. And so I was like, okay, you know, <laughs> and she even bought the test for me. So I was like, yeah, I can do it. Um, I will say that like, it's kind of cool to like get the app on the phone and see, oh, you know, 
this is where, you know, I always was curious exactly kind of whether I was more Scottish or Irish or English or whatever, or German. Um, so being able to kind of see that it's been kind of fun and interesting. Um, but like the type of thing I've pulled out like three times and looked at, I will say that it's interesting because the data has changed and gotten like more specific and better. It's probably not the right word to say changed, but the ancestry data has actually gotten more specific over the years. And so when I pull it out, whereas there used to be like larger swaths of my ancestry that would just say like broadly Northwestern European, now it will actually, it's honed in a little bit more and it'll even say like within England, um, it'll say like, Oh, you know, primarily from like the London area or things like that. And so um, they seem to be getting, because they've gotten more data, they seem to be getting more honed in on some of the ancestry data, but kind of cool to look at, but um, definitely don't feel any like great allegiance to the brand though, or anything like that. It's, it's been a fairly minimal piece of my life. Right. No, you're not thinking I'm going to subscribe to this, whatever monthly or your yearly thing. No, not really. Uh, And I didn't get any of the health testing when I, the, the test I got was just the ancestry test. And I think I could go in and add, you know, pay for the health test now or something, but um, that hasn't been something I've done. Right. I suppose those members are probably, or the subscription is probably for the, like the family members that you just referenced, the ones that are trying to do a whole bunch of genealogy work or uh, ancestral stuff. Yeah. But I think it's for health mostly. So I think it's more made for people that are worried about their health that are, it's probably, they're probably older than us, but yeah. Ryan, do you have anything or no? Yeah, nothing. I don't know. Uh, I would just say that when when there's a product like this, where like the the pitch is that everyone's going to get something, or like everyone's going to get one of these tests, that's kind of what management says. Uh, you have you should really ask yourself like, all right, how much do I want this thing? And for me, I really don't have any. I've never thought like, all right, I'm going to get one. Like, I don't know. It's just never passed my mind. And maybe my hurdle is like different than most, but I don't think so. I think a lot of people have that same thought where they're like. Eh, there's not really much value there. So I think that's a concern I have, at least anecdotally. Um, and I think that kind of plays out within their marketing spend because it seems like the only way they can grow revenue, at least from the kit side, is when they spend a lot of marketing. I think this is something that probably you garner as a customer, you garner more interest in doing something like this with age. Yeah, probably. Um, yeah. I don't think it's really targeted for 20-year-olds, but I could definitely see how the, it's pretty clear how the business model benefits from scale. Um, and how it would be able to scale the more data, the more complete their ancestral diagrams, the the better their database, the more uh, exciting it is to license it to other research firms. Yeah. That seems slightly theoretical for the time being, but. Mm, Yeah. I just, well, I guess we can talk about that later and what we like and don't like or any questions, but future growth opportunities. Ian, what do you have? Yep. So I've got subscription service for my future growth opportunities. Um, as we've discussed already, it's $29 a year and provides access to exclusive health reports and then also some enhanced ancestry features. And so there is a little bit of an ancestry component to it. Um, I think that it's probably a low enough price that users who love it, who love 23andMe and everything it does may get into it. But for users like me, for just the average person who just got the test, I don't really see the value proposition and kind of to use the test that you were just using, Brett, like I have no interest in purchasing it. Um, I think you mentioned, right, they've got about 125,000 subscribers currently. That number is probably a little bit lower than it could be because it's been more of a soft launch. They haven't really spent the marketing dollars behind it to to push it and really try and get people to, to subscribe. But I think that's probably because they know it's not 
going to be a big piece of their business. So this is something that they're doing, but I don't think it's the major growth opportunity with this business. Yeah, it seems like the value isn't there yet, um, but you can envision some, a world if they really execute well on this database stuff and getting all the the research and the insights on that. There, there is a world where you think, wow, you could provide a lot of value there. So many like ancestry things and so many health related things. It could almost be like in conjunction with those, you know, bands you have or whatever, you know, the the, the health monitoring yeah. stuff. Oh, that's a little bit over our head, like technically wise, but you can see a world where that could happen. But it's from our view, at least kind of, it seems far away. All right, Ryan, what do you have? Yeah, I, I initially had the subscription service jotted down as well. I, I kind of took it away because I had sort of the same uh, worries, I guess, as Ian, which is I, I don't necessarily see the customer value prop there. Um, so I changed mine to targeting more pharmaceutical manufacturers or pharma labs. Uh, Right now, I believe the majority of the revenue from that segment comes from what they said is their GSK agreement. So yes, that is a it's exclusive till twenty twenty four or twenty twenty three. I can't remember the exact date, so it has to be yeah. So are they only allowed to license it to them currently until twenty twenty four? Because GSK, which is uh, I don't know, they're like a thirty billion dollar company, but they made an equity investment in twenty three and Me. So I think that was part of the deal. Okay. Um, well, I guess once that expires, then uh, or hopefully ends, either they get a new one or get a new extension that's worth a lot more, or they're able to uh, reduce concentration risk and add a lot more pharma labs. I think that's really the goal here is the value is all in the database. So leveraging that way, leveraging that the best way you can, which because I don't have any expertise on their actual therapeutics and I have no way of telling whether something's going to be successful or not. Uh, it seems the most valuable way to do that is to license it. Yeah, we can. We shouldn't. We should hammer on the point that the kits seem like a bad business, not sustainable on its own. So it's really all about leveraging it into other products and services. I'll mention the other one, which is a cancer drug candidate they have called P zero zero six. It doesn't have a marketable name yet, since it's not you know past all the FDA or whatever. Whatever that's got a ring to it. Yeah, I think it's probably has something to do with the DNA strands or whatever, but it's supposed to treat tumors uh, before they turn cancerous or deadly. Uh, so like, if you didn't know, like tumors can be benign. I think a lot of people know that, but if this helps with that, it could possibly be very useful for, you know, treating certain cancers uh, in someone's body before, you know, they become deadly. They have no information besides that. It's still pretty early stage. They do have actually, I think this is a good note. They had a lot of transparent information about the actual science behind how they find it and then how are they developing it and like why this certain drug works. However, I don't think I'm, you guys are in the same boat here. I, 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 didn't, I couldn't get anything from it because it's way over my head. But if you understand that stuff, I think they're pretty clear about it. And I, those are good signs that they're not trying to be sketchy or misleading about their drug development. They're being very open about it. But and I'm, I think they have a hundred scientists on staff. So they're really investing in it. In all these, they have 40 candidates, and I guess P006 is either their first or second one coming down the line. They're all preclinical. Yeah, they have, they're still, none of them are even close to phase three, the last, the last phase trial, um, which means they're going to have to spend a lot of money. But like Ian said, they highlight they have over $700 million. Let me invert that. If you're a shareholder, would you prefer that they keep that secretive? Uh, or, or what they're developing. Yeah. Um, oh, I don't think it's the secret sauce. <laughs> like 
they wouldn't do that, but they're like explaining something without saying, you know, they're kind because of, I think it's a new way of going about it, but they did give more detailed stuff than say some other drug manufacturer that you're looking at. And I think the real question is though, is it smarter to license out the stuff to other companies? Or if it's truly an adva- a competitive advantage, why not keep it in house? possible uh highlights lowlights yeah yeah the the main highlight for me is i think that they're right about the problem and and kind of the trend towards preventative medicine that people are going to want to rather than just treating things after we know about them actually treat things like before they occur or right as they occur um i also think it's pretty impressive that the company is still around and has built such a big and broad database but for me, a few of the lowlights are the focus, I think, may be too broad. I'm not sure what their core competency is. And as we've talked about, they're trying to get more into this pharmaceutical um, this ph- pharmaceutical um, development. But that doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like anything they've done in their history has really prepared them for that necessarily. Um, they just happen to have the database. And now they're trying to, like, I'd, I'd like it much better if they could just, if the licensing was just really valuable, that they could just license it to other people. And that was just a super valuable piece of business. But I'm, I'm not convinced that that's the case. Um, a couple other low lights, just poor recent numbers. And then I, I am a little bit worried about just the ethical and legal implications of collecting all this data and mm-hmm. um, on people, right? Like I, I, even when I got my test, there was a little thing in the back of my head that was just thinking, you know, I hope no one, you know, I hope this data doesn't end up in the hands of the wrong person someday, you know, <laughs> um, or get, gets used against me in some way by an insurance company or something like that someday. So, um, you know, I think there's just, there's a few, few little yellow flags. Yeah. yeah. That's why I don't, that's kind of, I think a lot of people, that's why I didn't want to get it ever. Yeah. You know? And the, uh, the way they market the consent button on their website is a little strange to me, which maybe that's one of my lowlights is they, they're like 80% of people consent. And then they've got like this glowing green button that says consent. And then like a tiny link that says, do not consent. Um, and I don't think people know exactly what they're consenting to and where that data might get shared. Uh, that hasn't stopped internet companies in the past. They're just running some A-B tests, whatever works. All right. Uh, highlights for me, a, user, a user-generated database sounds like an attractive model. Um, and the, rem, uh, the remaining revenue that's not included from the kit sales which is the research services revenue, uh, seems to be growing at a pretty impressive clip. The more I think about that, that might be integrating the subscription revenue. I don't know how valuable that is, um, but the, there is something to be excited about in there. Low lights for me, overall revenue is declining. Um, and it, the kit business in and of itself, every, everything else feels a little bit high, riskier, hypothetical within the business, um, like building out this really, really powerful database, uh, betting that maybe they produce a cancer drug that's uh, effective. Whereas the kit business is really sort of their bread and butter. I don't like that part of the business. Uh, the, the lifetime value, unless they're a subscriber is pretty low. Yeah. Oh, uh, it's a I think it's purchase. zero. I think it's zero. I mean, I mean if, well, you have to spend all that on, if you have to spend all that on marketing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, the drug development part, adds risk for sure. Uh, highlights for me, I mean, with all those, you know, things we we're saying, the negative aspects, it is a fast growing industry. Maybe we're a bit early. Maybe this is going to be ubiquitous. Uh, they have the biggest data set among competitors. 
And the upside from drug development is extremely high. They, the, again, I don't know for reference, I, I don't know the industry that well, but I think their chief scientist or whoever is in charge of that part of the business said on the conference call that it was kind of unprecedented. Uh, I don't know if you use that exact term, but to have 40 drugs in development at this younger, at this young of, of a company. And that is because they have this database that they can go off of. I don't know whether it's just because they're, you know, kind of doing a spray and pray operation. Uh, and I don't know whether it, they can do that without the database, but they're saying it because it's correlated. So that could be great. That, uh, brings, go ahead. that makes me think that Ian's worries are uh, valid, like that they're just spread too thin. 40, yeah, 40 candidates seems like a lot for a company that is just starting this. They do say they have 100 scientists on staff. My first thought of that is like, okay, that's impressive. You convinced all the scientists to come over. But two, that sounds like a lot of salaries and you're going to need to get some development in there. Um, well, but they have so much cash now. They do have a lot of cash. We have, guys, we raise a lot of cash that we can burn. Don't worry. It's a good business. Um, all right. Low lights, though, for me, the kit business, like we said, is bad. Uh, it's clearly bad. Uh, on its own, and they are relying on two pivots to succeed. So that that is add, that's add, adding risk, like we just discussed. And then lastly, I mean, a lot of dilution here. Potential share count, or excuse me, share count could double. I think in a decade, that's kind of what could happen. They they may slow down their uh, granting pace, and they may do a little bit less. But I could see it totally doubling, and that kind of means like if you're looking at it, all right, I'm going to hold this thing for a decade. Am I buying it at a $3.3 billion market cap or am I buying it at a $6.6 billion market cap? That is a huge difference. Well, it's actually good because it'll improve their earnings per share. It, well, okay. True. Since they're, negative. Since they're negative, that is true. The beat. Dilution I, is I, working in the favor of the shareholders. Adjusted EBITDA could get higher than uh, gross margin, than gap gross margin. I've seen that. Tesla's pretty close, but the, on earnings per share, yeah, that is a bit of a loophole where they can beat on negative earnings per share. <laughs> the stock source. That's always a uh, good little quirk that happens. But let's move right into bull case. Ian, what do you think you go right here? I think for this to go right, that it becomes a replica of Facebook. And what I mean by that is that there's a lot of questions right now about how monetizing this data um, is going to be feasible. It seems pointless. Um, it seems like there's not really a great business here. But five to 10 years from now, it may become clear just how valuable this database is in a way that it's not currently um, clear. Uh, I think that's, you know, it's a little bit with Facebook, there is a little bit more for people who are looking into it at the time. There's more ideas that, okay, it looks like they are on the right track. They have an idea about how to monetize this. I think this is a little bit um, in an earlier stage than Facebook when it became a public company. But um, it just, I, th I think there, there could be a case where this data actually is much more valuable than we're giving it credit for right now. And um, it's not it's not exactly clear, and I don't think they know exactly who pays for that value, though. Right, Ryan. Yeah, uh, a lot of what Ian just said. The bull case for me is sort of this uh, health health data lollapalooza, where you have a lot of things working in tandem and working for you, where you've got this user generated content essentially, or user generated data. People are the the more the database expands, the more people want it, the more that you can fuel your therapeutics business. If you have a few successful drugs, um, it begins to work even more so in your favor. Uh, yeah, uh, the, the upside is there's a lot, of, there's clearly a uh, big upside, but obviously oh, yeah. a lot of risk to caveat that. If you, if you know how profitable a drug can be, I mean, 
this could be a trillion dollar business if they're if they're right. I'm not joking. If they, they if they have like ten drugs that are all super profitable, I mean that's you know, and they leverage that. I mean, it surely is high, but the, it's a huge if. It's a huge if. I, I and I think you know, I don't know how much risk there is. I think I mean I think there clearly is a lot. But my bull case is you know the database, like you guys said, it gives them an advantage. Uh, you'd have to rely on management to be smart enough to use that advantage correctly and the best way to make money over the long term is it to just do all these drugs internally or is it best to license it out to these manufacturers or i don't even think it's manufacturers it's just drug developers i don't know but they'll have to make that decision and then i think you gotta ask you know they're, they're putting money into the subscription product yeah i think it's got to get to at least a million probably a few million users for that to succeed as well all right bear case We've identified this a little bit already, but Ian, what do you think you go wrong here? For me, the biggest bear case is that genetics never becomes a major component of preventative medicine and that it captures a relatively small piece of the value chain, that most of the value in preventative medicine comes from not knowing my genetics, being able to develop drugs for that, but rather it comes from wearables and continuous monitoring and things like that that's just keeping track of me rather than something that's... Um, rather than anything that's actually um, from me, right? It's not about my genetics. It's just that I've, we've, we're tracking me and I see a, an alteration of my, my uh, blood pressure or something like that. So I think that's the fear here is that this, this database actually just isn't that valuable. Right. And what about this could, I'm trying to think of this now, this either is an advantage or a disadvantage, the gene editing stuff. I think that also could be a threat because if you can edit your genes to cure a disease, doesn't that make the database, like obviously you need to know what um, the mutation, the mutation like hurts it, but I don't think that's, you know, that's not proprietary to 23andMe. So I think gene editing kind of throws in a possible wrench here. But again, uh, if there's an expert on this listening, you may be saying, no, no, it's the opposite. It's going to help them. But either way, that's another variable thrown in as well. Um, All right. Bear case for you, Ryan. Uh, I think the spread here between the bear case and the bull case might be as large as any company we've looked at because the floor is bankruptcy. The floor is that they've burned through all the cash that they have. And there's, I mean, you could lose your entire investment. Uh, They don't really, I don't see all the, all the points that we've pointed to all the good possible things uh, are still kind of in the future. And right now it's a cash burning business. Um, if that persists and the database isn't as valuable as we've been discussing, uh, yeah, bankruptcy is definitely possible. Yeah. Um, I'm in the same boat. Ian, you have something or? Yeah. I was just going to say, I think it's an interesting thing. And what Ryan just brought up that what we've really got here is we've got an asset that no one knows the value of, but it's currently not an asset that's really cash flowing or not cash flowing very much. And so, um, that's the big question here is how, how valuable is the data and will it ever cash flow to a, to a, number that makes makes sense right is it (laughs) and i think that's just what everyone's trying to figure out right now and it's and it's interesting to see it in the public markets yeah and this is definitely not advice but this this makes me feel like i should buy put and call options at the same time long-term puts and calls what's funny is they didn't really emphasize that in their s1 they didn't spend that much time talking about it they talked about what uh the value of potentially licensing the database. So it's because I think he, the, the exclusive thing, and I think they're pivoting to in-house. That's what they're trying to do, make it exclusive. Or the long-term, if they're successful, keeping it exclusive it's is, right is yeah. better 
but licensing it could be a lot more profitable. If they do that and they don't develop a single drug, uh, then they're screwed. Yeah. Yeah. All right. My bear case, similar as yours, but I'd say subscription product, that's a dud. I think I'm leaning towards probably a dud uh, that will hurt them, doesn't kill them. And then if the database doesn't give them advantage, like you guys said, that's my bear case as well. Um, but I get worried when a company says, no, 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 don't worry. You know, we're burning cash now, but we got big data. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, come on. Like, I'm not going to invest in something just because they say, no, 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 we got a data advantage. I, I just, whenever someone says that, or if that's supposed to be the bull case, that, that gives just a huge, I don't know. That's just a big concern for me because it's one, something that is unpredictable to me. Two, you have no idea whether it's going to succeed or not. Also, Why has it not become an advantage at 11.6 million? Like, isn't that enough? I would think that's enough statistically. You, you know, you also haven't seen, we don't know the value of uh, competing databases or competing services, I guess. So it's kind of hard to. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I the big data is just, it's uncertain. Like all this AI stuff, it's all feels very dot commy to me because it's like, no, no, don't worry. We got big data. It'll be fine eventually. It's like, all right. It's kind of like the users and eyeballs stuff that, you know, it worked for companies in 2010, but in 1999, it was all kind of BS. Um, all right. More or less interested. We may have foreshadowed this a bit, uh, but Ian, what, what do you got for us? Yeah, I'm less interested. And the, the big reason is this is the type of business that I sometimes do like to take a little bit of a swing on when it's got some sort of um, future that that is very uncertain, but has a lot of upside. But a lot of times when I take a swing on a business like that, I like to do that when it's like a piece of the business that has a lot of upside, but is is uncertain. And they've got some sort of core business that's still generating a little bit of cash flow, kind of provides a little bit of a floor and, and provides some funding for that for that growth opportunity. With this, I don't see any proof of a great business anywhere here. And like I said, I think we're yet to see the value of this data, this data network, we or this database, we will see it, like, we'll start to get some data on that as ironically, but we'll start to get some data on that as the um, as these drug um, start start to be developed and see if that actually leads to anything. If they still don't, they could start pumping out, like you said, Brett, some like great drugs that um, this data gives them an, an advantage in, in creating and developing um, that none of us are foreseeing right now. But right now, there's just not a great business here that I can really latch onto at all. And it's just a little bit, a little bit too speculative for me. So I'm less interested. Yeah. Look at the market cap of these drug developers. Once they get profitable, some of them have one. There's someone I, uh, I knew from my, uh, earlier in my days that uh, when I was younger, when I was a kid, uh, that has like a company that has one drug basically. And it, the company tr is like a $15 billion market cap or something like that, maybe a little lower, but the companies that have multiple, I mean, these, I mean, it's, you're saving people's lives. It's a bit morbid, but it can be extremely profitable because of the value they're providing. Uh, Ryan, what do you got more or less interested? Uh, I would like one of us to be more interested, but I think it's going to be consensus here. I am less interested it, it, I, I might watch, uh, I might read their earnings reports in the future and kind of just keep up with it. But uh, the exciting part of the exciting part of the business, I would consider outside my circle of competence. Yeah, for sure. I think we're all in the same boat here. We would love to have an advantage in biotech, uh, but we don't, <laughs> do. we don't, we can't pretend and would take us years to get there. 
And if you want to do that, you can, you can study for that. Uh, but yeah, I'm in the same boat, less interested because easily see this being a huge business someday if they're correct, if they're pumping out, you know, drugs at an accelerated rate. I think they said that the typical drug takes seven years and they're on pace for like two to three years. So if that holds up, that could be great. We could definitely be eating our words here, but I'm less interested because of the downside risk outside of the circle of competence. I will highlight though, and this is yes, highlighting uh, our sponsor, Seven Investing. If you want to learn about this stuff, I would seriously outsource it to Seven Investing. They have, I think, well, Max is who, who he's the core guy that works on this. They also have Dana, who is in healthcare, who knows about this as well, and Simon, who is a jack of all trades, knows a lot about this as well. I am sure they have stuff on this industry on their service, well worth the money if you're interested in this stuff, because we could be missing something here. Yeah. You could be missing something here as the listener. And if you're really interested in biotech, I honestly wouldn't buy like an ETF. Uh, I would subscribe to Sound Investing and just was, follow their picks. I was thinking about asking Max or shooting him a DM about 23andMe just to see if he looked at it, but I forgot to. So Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it. Stock for next time. Ian, what do you have for us? Stock for next week, I think we're going for uh, Twilio. I've been doing a little bit of research on uh, Jeff Lawson, and I'm kind of curious about taking a deeper look at the co- company. So Nice. Okay. SaaS, cl- or not even SaaS, cloud, APIs. Yep, what is APIs. it called? Uh, yeah. APIs, as a ser- IPAs. As a service. We're just doing yep. so much. Communication yeah. as a service. There we go. Yeah, no. Yes. Great. I mean, great company. Gosh, that's one that, I don't know. Uh, it's just been a huge winner. It's just, it's just been a monster. I think we looked at them three years ago. So we may have to go reference. How <laughs> yeah, I did see. I did see that back. I did a quick Google search to see if you guys had ever talked about it. And it was, I think, back in 2019. So oh, that's um, when we were really. Bad. You know, if anybody, if any listeners want to go check it out, you can do a quick Google search and hear what they were saying in 2019 <laughs> about Twilio. Yeah, don't. Uh, I am sure it's a lot. Um, it's way worse than the shows are now. I can guarantee that. But if you want to listen, get a good laugh. Do that. But that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. Ryan and I are general partners at Arch Capital. Arch Capital clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.